I don't know how it is to be white, but I try to imagine it sometimes. I really do. I try to imagine what it's like to be white and to just be totally unaware that like white is the thing. You know what I'm saying? Like I can see how it happens though. When you are the norm and everything is measured against you, you don't question who you are and, and how you got here and how it impacts others. And so sometimes when my black friends say, why would that guy even think that? I'm like, well, why would he think differently? Like what meeting would he have been in? What experience would he have had? What teachings would he have learned? If he didn't seek it out, how would he have learned? So it does show up that way, but I try very hard maybe too hard for some to simply accept people where they are without trying to completely label them in ways that will send them in an opposite direction. And so you don't see me talk about, for example, I don't call them racist. I try to limit my use of privilege. Even when I do, I count myself in certain ways of privilege so I can still stay connected to my white friends. I'm trying to bring them onto a journey that helps them realize this issue of race that is really a social construct that we built for power and money reasons and try to get them to see these systems. It's just a long, hard slog and they're afraid. They're afraid. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. My friend, I do not believe you're a racist. My friend, I realize you do not need to care. You do not need to learn the cultural norms of black people as a prerequisite for your career advancement and access to opportunity. You do not need to understand my fears and perceptions to keep yourself safe or to have social mobility. You do not need to consider my journey or think critically about how the construct of our nation was built, nor how it's supporting your success while it constrains mine. Your future is not predicated on me, how I feel, or what I think of you. You sit in a different position than I do. Yet when you ask me what you can do as a first step, I emphatically say, just care enough to ask the question. These are the words of Melvin J. Gravely II from his forthcoming book about the racial divide in America. Dear white friend, the realities of race, the power of relationships, and our path to equity. As a CEO and civic leader, Melvin speaks to his white colleagues, many of whom are uncomfortable talking about race without judgment, but rather to offer a different perspective on race relations and equity. In this episode, Melvin joins us to share how we can engage in race issues and become empowered to be a part of the conversation, and importantly, the solution. This April, a report was published on race and ethnic disparities in the UK. It had been commissioned by the UK government in the wake of last year's Black Lives Matter protests. The report was widely criticised and racial equality advocates declared it to be a historic denial of race inequality in Britain. While accepting that racism remains a real force in the UK, the report stated that the British system is no longer deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. It went on to say that too often racism is the catch-all explanation for poor life chances but that evidence showed that geography, family influence, socioeconomic background, culture and religion have more significant impact. 
The report also argued for the term institutional racism to be applied only when deep-seated racism can be proven on a systemic level. The report stated that there are still real obstacles and that there are also practical ways to surmount them, but that this, quote, becomes much harder if people from ethnic minority backgrounds absorb a fatalistic narrative that says the deck is permanently stacked against them. But as NPR pointed out, according to the government's own statistics, black people in England and Wales are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. The denial of racism is a form of gaslighting. Researchers in Canada found that over time, gaslighting emotionally and psychologically exhaust marginalised groups when they realise that their voices are not being heard or taken seriously. Typical examples of denial include statements like, I've nothing against black people, but... The research paper Denying Racism, Elite Discourse and Racism finds that statements like these play a prominent role in the reproduction of racism by legitimising ethnic or racial stereotypes and prejudices amongst white group members. Denial can also show up in the way a person responds to being called out on saying something racist. Responses like, I didn't say it on purpose, that isn't what I meant, or you've got me all wrong, play out as defence mechanisms, but by focusing on our own intent rather than on the effect of our actions on the other person, we're fundamentally missing the point and shirking the responsibility for the impact of our statements and behaviours. It's like if I knock into someone and physically hurt them, I should still take responsibility, even if the impact was unintentional, the hurt to them was real, accident or not. The Denying Racism research paper says that ultimately denials can reverse the charges and accuse the person of colour for having intentionally misunderstood the other person and accuse them of racism without grounds. So it's not us who are racist, it's them, goes the narrative. One of the major forms of denial is simply denying difference, believing that you don't see colour. As a white person, denying the privilege and power afforded by my skin colour allows me to avoid having to sit with that discomfort of the privilege and power. So I might deny it exists or deny that it's personally benefited me in any way. Here Melvin shares the challenges of this sort of denial. I don't know how it is to be white, but I try to imagine it sometimes. I really do. I try to imagine what it's like to be white and to just be totally unaware that like white is the thing. You know what I'm saying? Like I can see how it happens though. When you are the norm and everything is measured against you, you don't question who you are. And, and how you got here and how it impacts others. And so sometimes when my black friends say, why would that guy even think that? I'm like, well, why would he think differently? Like what meeting would he have been in? What experience would he have had? What teachings would he have learned? If he didn't seek it out, how would he have learned? So it does show up that way, but I try very hard, maybe too hard for some, to simply accept people where they are without trying to completely label them in ways that will send them in an opposite direction. And so you don't see me talk about, for example, I don't call them racist. I try to limit my use of privilege. Even when I do, I count myself in certain ways of privilege so I can still stay connected to my white friends. I'm trying to bring them onto a journey that helps them realize this issue of race that is really a social construct that we built for power and money reasons and try to get them to see these systems. It's just a long, hard slog and they're afraid. They're afraid. 
In the book White Fragility, author Robin DiAngelo shares the concept of white fragility, a phenomenon whereby white people become angry, defensive, or hostile when confronted with the idea that they are complicit in systemic racism. Examples include reactions to racism from white people like insisting they were taught to treat everyone as the same, that they're colorblind, that they don't care what color someone is. White people will point to their friends and family members of color as evidence of their lack of racism. They will shout, they will cry, they will deny. In the book, Robin examines the failure of white society to understand the structural nature of racism. She explores the history of existing racial hierarchy and makes a powerful case for why it's incumbent upon white people to accept their individual and collective responsibility for upholding white supremacy, and importantly, to do the difficult work of challenging it. Here Melvin shares what he wants his white friends to know when it comes to tackling systemic racism. I want them to, to actually go explore a few of these ideas and questions. So I want them to become more culturally fluent, comfortable, because if they're not, it's going to be a struggle. So I'd want them to know from my book that you need to be more culturally fluent. I want them to work with me to close the gap between the races. And so I, I stack whites on top, blacks on the bottom, everyone else in between. And if we work on that sandwich that way, I think we bring our whole culture together. And last but not least, I want them to be more aware of the systems. I want them to see the cycles of behavior that we just keep repeating over and over and over again. Even some of the reviewers of the book said to me that my white friends that reviewed the book said, I get it. I just don't know how much of it I own. And it hurt me a little, but I get it, right? So they have to acknowledge the history that got us to this point. If we don't acknowledge the history of what got us here and the damage that it has created that perpetuates today, we're not going very far. And so friends of mine who won't acknowledge it, I won't have a conversation with those people anymore. I can't carry that burden. So acknowledge is one, number one. The second one, though, is more difficult. They've got to decide that it's no longer okay. Those two things to me, I call them the pillars of equity. We're not going to have a very productive conversation if you're still trying to wrestle with whether this is real and whether we created this, we, the nation, created this. And if you haven't decided it has to change, then I'm not sure where we're going. So I'm asking and I'm calling for strongly in the book, if there's any repeated theme throughout this book, we have to acknowledge where we are and how we got here. We have to acknowledge where we are and how we got here and the damage that still exists and then we've got to decide something has to change. And so I would say to you, if I can get people to do those two things, the how, the what we do next becomes the work that we do. And we probably have at least 100 years of work to do. Okay, we should get started because it doesn't get shorter by waiting any longer. As explained in an article in The New Yorker, Diversity fatigue is a term coined in the late 1990s to describe the stress that managers felt when tasked with implementing the organization's attempts to diversify the workforce through recruiting and retention efforts. But according to an article published by Employers' Council, over recent years, diversity fatigue has taken on an expanded meaning to include people just feeling tired of talking about diversity or the lack thereof. They note that diversity fatigue shows up in a variety of ways. It can trigger distress in those that are committed to the work but see inadequate results. It can cause irritation for those that see diversity work as being merely for the sake of political correctness. For those that see it as a strategy used by organisations solely to enhance and further the brand, it can cause frustration. 
Here Melvin shares how corporate virtue signalling is at the heart of diversity fatigue. Forget what I think about Juneteenth for a second. Forget what I think about celebrating the fact that some Black slaves in Texas found out two years later than the other Black slaves. Forget what I think about that for a moment. Look at the vote. It was a bipartisan, damn near unanimous vote for a Black holiday. And they did that because it was easy. And my fear is we've done a lot of things because they're easy. Let's change that brand. Let's rename that building. Let's write a check to this cause. And we got serious work to do with ourselves, with our institutions, with our relationships. And that works harder. So I think what I'm hearing and I'm seeing the fatigue is they're just sick of this topic. So I'm here in Idaho and I'm going to speak to a group of conservative white business leaders. I'm in Sun Valley, Idaho. I have seen three black people and I've been here three days. One of them is me in the mirror, right? I mean, there's just nothing going on here. And I look at the legislation in this state and I'm going to stand up in front of this group. And I'm wondering if anyone's even coming to my session because I think they're worn out. With that said, that can't be our reason to stop. It may be our tactical change, right? So if I want someone to change, I may have to change my tactics, but I have to keep moving this agenda along at a particular pace. So I try not to make them feel defensive. And, you know, again, my black friends are like, well, who cares how they feel? Well, if I want you to change, I got to meet you where you are and try to get you to come to see a new way. I'm very worried about fatigue. I'm very worried about virtue signaling. I'm very worried about the symbolic things we've done being enough, being, well, I've given you a holiday. Like what, what else do you want? And I'm very worried about that. Melvin is the majority owner and CEO of a commercial construction company in Cincinnati, Ohio. Melvin sits on numerous boards and co-chairs the Cincinnati Regional Business Committee, a group of a hundred middle market CEOs working collectively towards meaningful civic action. As every company is unique, There will never be a one-size-fits-all approach for taking action on racism. Rather, leaders must choose to create anti-racist systems within their companies and communities. Melvin believes we need action plans and perseverance across sectors to tackle the systemic racism that exists in workplaces. I'm living this in real time. You know, I'm the CEO of a company with about 100 people, so it's not a huge company or anything. But the majority of them are white people. We've got a lot. We've got more African-Americans and more Asians and more women in construction roles than any other construction company. But still, the majority of them are white. And so how does an African-American CEO lead the company of everyone in this space? And this idea of Juneteenth just came up this week. And I had Black employees saying, you got to do something. We need a day off. We need this. We need that. And I said, I'm the CEO of everyone. So here's what I'm saying that employers and business leaders can do. Think about the superpower we have. We can hire people. We can buy in our supply chain from people and we can advocate. I mean, who do you think's backing the politicians in communities? And so that's the superpower. If we decide to make our efforts more inclusive, if we decide to work on our internal culture so that everyone can come there to work, they don't have to assimilate or shed who they are, that we build in our systems for hiring and promotion and development. Michelle, I've listened to at least one of your podcasts where you're very clear about what's important about creating that place of culture that everyone can feel connected and valued. Companies can do that. 
And it doesn't mean that anyone loses. It means we all collectively win. I don't believe that leaders of the future are going to be the lead without specific empathy around race, gender, and other diversity, because your employees are either going to resonate with you or they're not. And to be a leader in 2021 going forward, you're going to have to build that skill. We each constantly operate within and across a multitude of systems and institutions which are woven together to make up society. This includes formal systems like education, healthcare, laws and regulation, as well as the less formal, perhaps even unspoken, systems which are about the way things are done. Systemic racism or institutional racism is about how ideas of white superiority are captured in these systems and in the ways these systems operate on a day-to-day -day basis. To consider the existence of systemic racism, we need to lift our heads out of the one-to-one -one interpersonal interactions and instead think about the bigger picture of how our systems and therefore our society operates. Take the criminal justice system as an example. An article in HuffPost lists 14 examples of racism in the US criminal justice system. These include the fact that once arrested, black people are more likely to remain in prison awaiting trial than white people. In the federal system, black offenders receive sentences that are 10% longer than white offenders for the same crimes. And 17% of white job applicants with criminal records received callbacks from employers, compared to only 5% of black ex-offenders. And systemic racial inequity is also experienced by those who work in the criminal justice system. Last year, black barrister Alexandra Wilson in the UK tweeted about being mistaken for a defendant in court three times in just one day. The responses to her story indicated this was far from an unusual experience for many lawyers of colour. Here Melvin shares his views on solutions to systemic racism. There is no simple answer to systemic racism. But I will tell you that we have got to get at that so there's some things we can do to become more aware. There's some things we can do to close the gap. We can buy differently from people and, you know, have some preference programs and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, we have to stop doing additional damage. We've got to look at the core systems of our nation, how they operate, who they operate to benefit and who they operate to exploit. And we've got to start working on those systems. And I do believe we have a hundred year problem. It makes common sense to see that. There's also societal issues. You know, how much can we tear at the fabric of how we are together? All the marches and the anxiousness and the shouting back and forth and all those things. But at the end of the day, what I tell my white friends is either we believe in the promise of the United States of America, or we don't. Either we were born with certain inalienable rights or we weren't. And at the time, there were rights for white men. We know that, right? White male landowners really is who they meant. But Today, that has to mean all of us and women and people of color have to be included. And if we don't pull ourselves to that, if we don't wrap ourselves in that flag, I think it's just going to be difficult because we've taken the other things I've mentioned for granted. We've taken the cost and we've already added that in. In the paper, White Fragility and the Rules of Engagement, Robin D'Angelo shares how to engage in the necessary dialogue and self-reflection that can lead to structural change. She writes that a large part of her work is moving white people from an individual understanding of racism, i.e. only some people are racist and those people are bad, 
to a structural understanding. A structural understanding recognises racism as a default system that institutionalises an unequal distribution of resources and power between white people and people of colour. The system is historic, taken for granted, deeply embedded, and it works to the benefit of white people. Robin says the two most effective beliefs that prevent white people from seeing racism as a system are one, that racists are bad people, and two, that racism is conscious dislike. If we're well-intended and do not consciously dislike people of colour, we cannot be racist. Robin says this is why it's so common for white people to cite their friends and family members as evidence of their lack of racism. However, when you understand racism as a system of structured relations into which we're all socialised, you understand that intentions are irrelevant. And when you understand how socialisation works, you understand that much of racial bias is unconscious. Negative messages about people of colour circulate all around us. Robin suggests that tackling white fragility starts with taking accountability for it by accepting that racism is the norm rather than the exception. As a white person, if someone gives you feedback on your racism, Robin shares two steps for how to respond. First, recognise that how, where and when someone gives you feedback is irrelevant. It's the feedback you want and need. Understanding that it's hard to give, you acknowledge it and take it any way you can get it. From your position of social, cultural and institutional white power and privilege, you're perfectly safe and can handle it. Two, thank the person. Thanks again for tuning in. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, then please reach out at thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. If you want to support our work, then please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get yours. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all again next week.